This is Macro Horizons, episode 14, Winter is Here, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Little John Hill and Big Ben Jeffrey, no relation, to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 15th. And a friendly reminder that while submitting an II vote won't bring back Ned Stark, spoiler alert, it could offer us a season two for the Ian Show podcast. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Supply, CPI, and the FOMC minutes were undoubtedly the themes of this past week, as we've seen yields move to challenge and redefine the upper end of the lower range we've held in. Ian, how has this past week updated your mindset about the treasury market? In the week just passed, we got a lot of new information. We saw an improvement in Chinese export data. We saw a continued lowflation print with core CPI once again disappointing. And all the while, the treasury market has been holding a remarkably tight range. Now, we close the week with 10-year yields back above 250. But let's face it, 10-year yields above 250 at this point in the cycle isn't really an exciting level to talk about. In fact, 250 has proven to be a pretty important focal point for the 10-year sector. What is more compelling is that we continue to see this debate in the shape of the curve. We got as low as 14 basis points in twos tens, and we steepened back out. It's really that 9 to 22 basis point range that we expect to continue to hold until we have something more definitive, either in the form of economic data or guidance from the Fed. From a technical perspective, we came into this week looking for a bit of a backup given the overbought conditions that have persisted. We saw stochastics curl and come out of oversold territory. We saw an improvement in DSIs in terms of no longer being overbought as well. So it's not that surprising that we've seen this in-range consolidation as a market builds up volumes for another move. The series of new information that we have received over the course of the last week or week and a half is really consistent with this notion that we are going to see the pendulum of economic sentiment shift from being very negative back to something more balanced. And when that occurs, we'll see upward pressure on yields. Our core views haven't changed. We still like a short-term tactical flattener with the potential for timing the big cyclical re-steepening of the curve. Ten-year yields are going to be in a range for most of this year. If anything, we would bias them a bit lower at the end of the year if and when we actually see the U.S. economy slow down more materially. We've been on about this idea that the next trade will be pricing in a 1990s 
style scenario where the Fed is at least ostensibly able to orchestrate a soft landing for the economy. What does that look like? That looks like a persistent period in which two-year yields trade well below effective Fed funds, but the rest of the curve remains range-bound. I was very encouraged to see the takedown of the 10-year auction. Very solid stats, more importantly, it came at a low yield mark, suggesting that there's plenty of demand outside of the primary dealership community to take down this supply. In terms of levels that we're watching in the 10-year sector, the 262 support is going to be very important. If we're sustainably able to trade above 262, it would be a near-term bearish signal. Frankly, there is a fair amount of buying interest out there, again, as evidenced by the results of the auction. So we would be surprised to see any material retest above 270, give or take, even as equities appear poised to return to record highs. In short, it was a defining week for the treasury market insofar as the bulk of the information we received essentially solidified the range that treasury yields have been holding for the last couple weeks. And we're back in our Macro Horizons makeshift studio where we're trying to put the fun back in strategy. But there's no fun in strategy, John. Yeah, I know. Okay, then... Turning to the 10-year auction, what we saw this past week was yields move back toward the top of the range after the end of March's big rally. And what that ultimately ended up being was a pretty good concession for supply. And in fact, given the strength we saw in the 10-year auction, it was the lowest dealer takedown since March 2017 at a time when it was the lowest yielding auction since December 2017. You know, it's interesting, Ben, we've started to see over the course of the last three or four quarters, most identifiably at least, that auction concessions are increasingly priced in during the prior week. So a Thursday, Friday, otherwise inexplicable sell-off is reasonable to attribute to incoming supply. I make that note because historically one would expect to see auction accommodations really play out in the prior session or two ahead of big auctions. So the market seems to be getting even further ahead of these big supply events. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And to your point, even though the intraday price action leading into tens was pretty much right at the highs of the day, yields fell right into 1 p.m. and then you still saw the auction stop one basis point through. It was really the preceding several sessions, the preceding week that kind of baked in that concession. And then in the aftermath of the auction being taken down, you saw you saw yields in the 10-year sector start to kind of drift back below 250 and just additionally, from a technical perspective, stochastics are now also starting to curl, which kind of suggests we've seen that bearish momentum at the end of last week run its course, and that kind of clears the way for the next move. I think it's also very consistent with such a strong takedown at the 10-year insofar as that implies a flatter curve, at least from my perspective especially in the context of a Fed that has signaled no willingness to actively consider an ease at this point. 
I'd also note that the auction came relatively soon after once again disappointing CPI data. So not that lowflation is necessarily a surprise to the market, but the longer we spend with average hourly earnings above 3% without that pass-through into broader inflationary pressure, the less and less that concern becomes. One of the things that I noticed was the market really ignored the drop in real average hourly earnings on a year-over-year basis. We went from 1.9 to 1.3. When one looks back at the history, even 1.3 for this cycle is a pretty solid number. In fact, it was really only in 2014 and 2015 where we saw a comparable range maintained for any significant period of time. In that context, that's relevant because that's when we saw the consumer really driving real GDP. And I think that was something that was brought up in the minutes that really the Fed is kind of putting all its faith in the propensity of the consumer to spend. Was that a fair takeaway? Yeah, I think that's right. It seems that their baseline for the consumer is to respond relatively positively after some serious weakness we saw in December. And okay, fair enough. That makes some intuitive sense. You also have a drag from tax refunds, which even if net tax payments are lower, there could be a psychological negative for refunds being smaller. But it is worth just understanding that Fed staff projections are for consumer strength to remain in coming months. And even a deviation at relatively low levels would disappoint the underlying Fed staff. And Ian, you've made the point, I think, that it won't even take a massive collapse in consumption to really trigger more serious growth worries, but even just a mean reversion would do the trick. Yeah, because if we do mean revert to something closer to 1% in terms of the contribution to real GDP from the consumer, then we have to look around at the rest of the economy and try to imagine where growth is going to come from. Is it going to come from net exports? That seems unlikely. Is it going to come from government spending? The chances of another big fiscal initiative out of Washington at this point seem particularly low, at least from my side. I'd also note that gasoline prices tend to have a pretty significant impact on both consumer sentiment and activity. And we've seen gasoline prices perform their best year to date in five, six years. Now, that was also reflected in the headline CPI number, whereas the core, as you pointed out earlier, disappointed again, and it disappointed in a way that really complicates monetary policy at this point in the cycle. So, Ian, given disappointing inflation, could you see the potential for a stabilization cut out of the Fed, not necessarily return to a full cut cycle, but simply a one-off to acknowledge perhaps not only have they reached neutral, they might have gone past it on accident? I think it would be difficult for the Fed to so quickly justify cutting rates, having just gone to a period of being on hold. I will say, regardless of the underlying motivation, the first rate cut of the cycle will almost certainly be characterized as fine-tuning. To that point, I took a look back at some historical precedent for the possibility of a fine-tuning cut, and one period that seemed to correspond at least somewhat well to the current was the late 90s. You had a series of downside foreign risks play out, be it the Asian financial crisis or ruble crisis, along with core PCE that was consistently running below the Fed's 2%. Not massively, but still below 2%. 
And that corresponded to a one-off rate cut, I believe, before they hiked a couple more times to reach terminal for that cycle, of course, before cutting sharply in response to the dot-com bust. A lot of parallels have been drawn between the current state of monetary policy and what we saw in the 90s. Recall in the 90s, there were two what I'll characterize as fine-tuning rate cuts. Both episodes amounted to 75 basis points in aggregate. I wouldn't expect that in this environment. However, the idea that an external shock that results in the Fed shifting monetary policy but is ultimately resolved with a longer period on hold or perhaps even a final rate hike for this cycle is certainly within the market's narrative to some extent. And to that point, I guess I'd flag that we're not the only ones who are looking at the historical precedent. The Fed must be painfully aware that one of the implications of their fine-tuning cuts was to help inflate some of the asset price bubble reducing on the margin the probability they do something similar this time around. Speaking of roaring monetary policy successes, John, what was your takeaway from the ECB this week? So in a lot of ways, the ECB didn't really announce much new, though the characterization of the downside risks to the economy seemed a little stronger in the past. You saw some downward pressure on rates. This came on Wednesday, shortly after the disappointing CPI data and helped set up another strong tenure auction. But it seems that the ECB is really trying to figure out, one, how big are the downside risks? Two, what can we do to potentially mitigate them? But I think lingering in the background of all of this is how do they credibly commit to any serious policy given the potential transition with Draghi. So so in my mind, this is going to remain a point of uncertainty that should have spillover impacts, not only to boons, but also to treasuries. Although on some level, one would have to make the argument that regardless of who is in charge of the ECB, if a decision needs to be made to help the European economy, even if it's the last one on Draghi's way out, it's not unreasonable to expect that he would take it, no? No, I think that's fair. It's always one of the questions of how much does actual staffing matter? And if you have responsible policymakers sitting in these seats, they're going to try to do their best in response to incoming data, incoming economic developments. And to your point, I certainly sympathize with the notion that whether it's Draghi or the next president, they might actually act similar either way. I guess the question I would have is, do you think that opinion is universally shared across the market, or would there be some increased skepticism or uncertainty around the transition, justified or not? To your point, I think that the market is assuming that nothing happens until a new president is the head of the ECB, although that might simply be underpricing the risk that something occurs this summer. Yeah, I can imagine that folks in Frankfurt are really hoping that if the euro area economy begins to turn, it doesn't do so until there's some clarity around the transitionary period. So clearly October is going to be a very big month in terms of global macro developments. We have the ECB transition. We also have Brexit, which has now been delayed until Halloween. We'll see if that gets delayed until another holiday. In addition, we have the Fed buying treasuries outright in the market for the first time in five years. 
Yeah, and I think that nuance is important. The Fed coming back into the secondary market and buying across the curve, which to be clear also includes treasury bills for the first time in many years, is a relatively important development. It's certainly not a full-scale QE program, but as we've joked on the desk, perhaps it's equivalent to a lowercase QE. So this brings up another point that we've been hearing a lot about, and that is how political has the Fed actually become? One could make the argument that the Fed, now doing little QE, is giving in to the administration and calls to enter an actual QE program. I guess I would have some deep skepticism around that. I think for the way that I see it, it's more a function of the Fed approaching a steady state level of reserves and trying to do so with minimal impact on the market, as well as a much longer stated goal of rotating out of MBS into treasuries. Certainly the timing of the decision or the perceived timing of the decision leads some to draw parallels. But to me, what's justifying this move in and of itself has been laid out for quite some time just as the desire to move to an all-treasury portfolio and kind of continue to drift in the direction of what the new normal may look like. So in terms of underpriced risks, I think this brings up another very good one, because certain participants in the market strongly believe that Donald Trump has a greater influence on monetary policy than any president in modern history. And if that is the case, and he continues to advocate for rate cuts and the return of QE, and the Fed ends up being more stubborn in that regard, I think it's pretty clear that there's a trade there. Yeah, I mean, just at a first pass, that suggests that market pricing for rate cuts by the end of the year has gotten a little ahead of itself. The reality is the FOMC has aggressively said they want to be on hold, and zero sitting FOMC members have suggested the next move is an imminent cut. That brings us back to our ongoing debate, John, and that is, is this a steepener or is this a flattener? If the Fed is going to be on hold all year and we're currently pricing in too much easing in the 2020 January futures contract, then I would argue that that should put incremental upward pressure on the front end of the curve, at least on a relative basis, and we could retest that nine basis point cycle low for two stands. I would agree with you, but note two caveats to that. First, for that pricing to play out where the front end of the curve slowly reduces the probability of near-term cuts, everyone kind of has to agree with the notion that the probability of cuts is lower than they think. So it has to go from the idea that the president is trying to force or induce some amount of monetary accommodation that notion has to get disputed, so the idea of note cuts are coming. The second point that I would make is the longer this process rolls forward, the deeper that two-year tenor gets into 2021. So even if you're not seeing cuts coming in 2019, the probability cuts are coming in late 2020 or early 2021 gets increasingly built into the two-year tenor. The counterpoint that I would make to the second observation is based on some of the work that Ben and I have recently done, where we took a look at what happens on a QCIP specific twos tens trade that's placed at the moment the Fed goes on hold. So to your point, John, if it is a rolling two-year, 
then the 24-month window starts to incorporate a great deal more of 2020 or even 2021. But if we look at it just on a constant QCIP basis, we actually see there's a reasonable amount of flattening that occurs. So the takeaway is if you're going to try to put in a steepener, keep rolling it to the on the runs or to keep it at a constant QCIP? If it's a steepener, you roll it. If it's a flattener, you keep it constant. One thing that has become very apparent given the price action of the last few weeks is that people are very much on the sidelines. We see that in the positions data to a large extent. We see that in the relatively low volatility with a few very memorable exceptions. Price action has been very contained, and I think that that's what is going to play out certainly over the next several weeks. The upcoming holiday shortened week certainly doesn't help. More importantly, I don't think we have much data to speak of that is really going to change the market's paradigm of what to expect over the next quarter or so. So I think then a reasonable assumption is, at least for the next couple of days, you're going to see 10-year yields kind of hold in this 234 to 254, with obviously Fed funds being a alternate lower bound to that range kind of dictate how yields move. And of course, you can also see momentum curling bullishly, as we talked about earlier. And also, let's not forget any correlations with stocks or other assets over the next week. So to that point, one of the potential pain trades out there in the market is after you've had a very dovish Fed, very dovish ECB, and kind of an indication of we're on pause, it makes sense then, as Ian, you noted, to put a vol suppression trade. Short VIX, short vol, things are going to stay where they're at. That, though, opens up the door for a capitulation of that trade. And particularly, you could see a capitulation of that trade causing a spike in the VIX, a sharp drop in equities because they're continuing to test, if not break all-time highs, and a flight-to-quality rally that could push tens to test your lower bound of 2338. Yeah, and it's also being short fall in this environment is a very crowded trade, no? Yeah, absolutely. And if that unwinds, it could get ugly out there, further precipitating a flight to quality and or liquidity to benchmark treasuries. Speaking of things getting ugly, Ben, what did you think of your headshot in the most recent II voting email? Well, I was just happy it was next to John's for a point of comparison. Oh, come on, man. That's low. I guess management was right. We do have faces made for podcasts. In the week ahead, we'll see a few important tests of the present narrative in the treasury market. One of the biggest questions, at least from my perspective, is what happens if we get another disappointing retail sales print? Where The market has been very content to dismiss the February data as a residual from the weakness that we saw in the fourth quarter. What happens if we don't see a rebound? That could prove to be one of the core drivers for a material lower economic outlook in 2019. And frankly, given how much focus the Fed has put on the importance of the consumer and the baseline assumption that the consumer will come back, it goes without saying that this will be a focal point for the market. In addition, we do get trade data, Philly Fed, but at the end of the day, it's a holiday-shortened week. Liquidity will presumably be on the light side. And we'll be looking at risk assets for the incremental impulse for the treasury market, at least at the moment. The start to earnings season was impressive. The banks appear to be doing reasonably well, which added to the upward pressure on the equity market. There is some Fed speak in the week ahead. We hear from Evans, Rosengren, Bullard. 
but nothing that we're really anticipating will recast the market's current perception of the state of monetary policy and the probability that we see either a rate cut or a rate hike anytime soon. In terms of specific trades that we've been watching, we'd be looking to go long 10-year break evens on a forward basis if 197 is breached, just as a tactical play. We also like going long twos on a forward entry basis with a target of 250. That's not to suggest that we're going to get to 250 anytime soon. However, that is a level that we will be watching very closely. We're also entering a point where the seasonals tend to be a bit more bearish for the treasury market. Not a long-term shift, but if we look historically, the period between roughly where we are right now and the beginning of June has at least recently seen upward pressure in yields. A backup in tens that provides a buying opportunity that we ultimately see resolved by a very classic summer rally in treasuries certainly seems a reasonable game plan at this moment, with the caveat that the relevance of the global macro environment continues to set the tone in treasuries for the moment. We've recently seen a modest retracement of some of the gains in consumer confidence after the University of Michigan survey bottomed earlier this year. Again, this is very consistent with the idea that not only are markets consolidating, at least in the treasury space, but so is the economic data, adjusting to a materially lower plateau, but certainly not falling off a cliff per se. We've reached the point in this episode in which we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to listen this long. If you happen to have any residual optimism, simply replay this episode from the beginning. Alas, it is still II voting season as if you haven't heard this already. And trust us, we understand that it's a pain and rather annoying. Nonetheless, we could really use the support. And if you haven't rated our team already, please do so and let us know. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. 
It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.